If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Um, as, as Derek said earlier, my name is Jeff Martin. I'm the lead pastor of Redeemer Community Church up in Johnson City, Tennessee. So if Memphis is the far southwest corner, I'm in the far northeast corner. Um, and so as you fly in, you see kind of flat land. We live in the, the Appalachian mountainous region. It's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful, and it's an honor to serve up there. Um, Derek and I met in seminary, and um, both were up in Louisville, Kentucky, and we've kind of found ourselves on really similar trajectories. Um, we both got married, both have kids. My daughter was born on September 14th, 2011. His first son, John August, was born on September 13th, 2011. Um, we've got four-year-old, two-year-old. So, so, um, so it's been an honor to, to know Derek, to, to see how God is using his ministry here. It's absolutely breathtaking to, to see the students and how they've grown over the last three years and what God's doing in and through the life of that ministry. So you guys have um, an amazing student pastor to get behind, and it's evident that you are behind him. So thanks for letting me come hang out with you guys this weekend. But if you've got your Bibles, Daniel chapter 6. Before we jump in, I want to ask you a question. Um, Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like someone was trying to intimidate you? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where someone was trying to make you feel small. I remember when I was 17 years old, uh, I had my, my single cab, white, 4x4, F-150, and I, I loved that truck. I pampered that truck. I drove that truck like it was my baby, 10 and 2, following all of the rules. And I was driving down the highway, going 70 in a 70, in the right lane, and I was coming up on a car that obviously was not going the speed limit. And so as I'm approaching it, I know I need to make a lane change. So I I turn my blinker on, I check my mirrors, and I don't see anyone there. And so I safely pull over to get around. And as I pull over, I check my mirrors again, as I was instructed to do. And, And I realize that there is now a Suburban right behind me. And judging, um, or based off of the guy's facial expressions and his demeanor, it was obvious that I accidentally had cut him off. And so he was livid and mad, and and I'm sitting there realizing I've made a mistake, and and I'm planning out my move. I'm going to safely pass this car, make sure there's enough distance. I will pull over to the right. And in that moment, I had two options. I could keep my hands on the wheel, look straight ahead, and choose to ignore him, Or I could humble myself. I could bow my head, wave my hand, which is a a symbol of saying, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. And, And so before I can pull over to the right, he swerves to the right. He floors it next to me and he is yelling and just mad and angry, and, and his family is kind of embarrassed in the car at their dad's reaction. And, and in that moment, I decide not to look forward and to ignore him, but to acknowledge it. So I gave him the, I'm sorry, I have messed up. You are the better driver. I am the teenager, and I am sorry. And thinking that should resolve the issue. I mean, isn't, if you ever have someone cut you off, that's all you're asking for, right? Just let me know that you know that you messed up. And, and I thought I did that, but it did not work. He got even more mad. 
and he's yelling louder and, and more expressively. And there's a plate of glass, 70 miles an hour of, of speedway winds and, and then another plate of glass. And I can't hear a word. And I've thought I have done my job. I bowed my head. I waved my hand. I've said I'm sorry. And so at this point, I make a mistake. And I think that I've got the right idea. So I look at him and I make eye contact and I give him a thumbs up. It's like, good job, buddy. And he absolutely loses it. And, and in that moment, you, you see there's a, there's a, a 1999 pewter colored suburban that is nothing less than a hostile environment. Right. And, and in this, this situation, in the hostility, he is trying to make me cower, trying to make me feel small. And, and I think of the picture that we have of what it's like to be Christians who are faithfully following God in a world that's adamantly against him. So how do we face a world that wants us to shrink back? How do we live in a world that wants us to feel small? How do we live when the world wants us to fade into the shadows? Well, this weekend, we've been going through the book of Daniel and seeing what it means to inhabit the world that we live in. What does it mean to be an ambassador of Christ who's in the world, but not of the world? And Daniel has been a, a great example for us to follow as a man who lived fully committed to God and his ways in a world that was adamantly opposed to him. So in chapter 1, what we see is, is Daniel and his friends have been taken into a Babylonian captivity. So if you were to study the history of Israel, um, Saul is the first king. There's 12 tribes that are united. They stay united under David and Solomon. But after Solomon passes away, that kingdom splits. And so in the 720 BCs, um, the Assyrian army comes in and disperses all of Israel. There's the Assyrian dispersion. The northern tribes with Judah seems to be safe, but about 100 years later, the Babylonians come in and take them into captivity. Now, the, the method of operation for the Babylonians is they would take the youngest, the brightest, the, the, the best looking, the, the, the people that they thought were the ones that should be in high positions, and they would kidnap them more or less and put them into a royal training program. And in this training program, they would strip them of their former identity, their former heritage, and they would retrain them, re-educate them, indoctrinate them with their way and their culture so that they could be fully Babylonian. Well, Daniel and three of his friends were part of this program, but they chose to go against the grain and to remain faithful to God and not to forget who they were. And we see that God uses people who aren't conformed to the world, but are transformed by him in powerful ways. In chapter 2, we saw the, um, King Nebuchadnezzar having this crazy dream of a huge statue. And there's, there's all of these kingdoms that are all temporary, but then there's one kingdom that's everlasting. And, and no one can interpret this dream that he's having except for Daniel. And Daniel interprets it, but uses that opportunity not to only spare his life, but also to spare the life of other magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and wise men that he's not only saved from something, he's also saved for something. And that God puts us in the world for that same purpose. And then last night, we looked at the absence of Daniel. As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace for not bowing down to a fake God, but staying faithful to the true God. And God rescued them 
miraculously, but we saw that in life we sometimes find ourselves in the furnace. We sometimes find ourselves in tough circumstances, but God loves to use those times to shape us so that he can send us to people who need what we have. Well, now, if you fast forward in world history, you have the Syrians and then the Babylonians. And after Babylon falls, we have the Persians and the Medes. So at this point in chapter 6, what's happened is Babylon has fallen. The Persians and the Medes have been established. And there's a new king, King Darius. Now, Daniel, at this point, is approaching 90 years old. So he's getting older in his age, but Darius chooses to keep many of the governmental structures from Babylon in place. And with that, Daniel continues to hold a position of influence. So let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 6. It said, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So we have here is, is Daniel is really good at his job. And because of that, he is on his way to the top. Other people find themselves jealous of his position, find themselves jealous of his talents and the gifts that he have. So they start to conspire against him. Their goal is to find some dirt on him. So they, they hold his life under a microscope, but they can't find anything because he's a man of high moral character. And the only thing wrong that they can find is that he follows God. And so they conspire against him to overthrow him with another way. Look at verse 6. Then these high officials and the satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction. Sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius, sign the document and injunction. So what's happening here is, is they're, they're coming up with a plan. We will push the king to sign a document, make a law that no one can worship any other gods except him. And if they do, if they show faithfulness to anything other than the king, then they get thrown into the lion's den. Okay? And so the king sees this not as a religious platform, but as a political platform. 
So for him, he has this massive kingdom. How do you unite a massive kingdom? You give the people a single focus. So he sees this as a political opportunity to be the sole mediator between the people and the gods. And so he signs this into law. Now, it says that it can't be revoked. That, that's not necessarily true. Kings could do and counter edict, but they chose not to. They chose not to because if they made a law and said, this is what's best for the people, and then changed their mind, they would seem wishy-washy. They, they would lose face with their people. They might seem like weak leaders. So if they wrote a law that they know they should change, they hardly ever did because they wanted to seem strong and right and confident. So this law is signed into place by a king who will remain faithful to what he has said is best. Let's see what Daniel responds with. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So Daniel gets word of this, knows exactly what's happening, and what does he do? He goes home, comes to his window, he opens the curtains, he looks towards Jerusalem, towards the God of his fathers, towards his God, and he proceeds to pray three times a day, just as he had been in the practice of doing for the last 80 years. Why? Like, is is this public defiance of authority? I mean, why didn't he just go to a prayer closet? Couldn't Couldn't he have prayed in a closet and God still heard him? Absolutely. But what's happening here is that if he was to change his pattern of life, he would be making a statement that he didn't want to make. He would be telling them that he is no longer faithful to his God, but now he is faithful to a lesser king. And that's a statement he did not want to make because he was a man of faith, a man of persistence, a man after God's own heart, if you will. So what happens after this is that these leaders... Have Daniel arrested. And once they have him arrested, they bring him to the king and and remind the king of the law that he said, the law that he couldn't change. The king desires to deliver him, but knows that he can't. And he reluctantly has Daniel thrown into the lion's den. Let's see what happens. Jump down to verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. In other words, he says, There is nothing I can do. If your God's real, I hope he shows up. Verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet. And with the signet of the Lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. 19. Then at break of day, 
The king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? what What do you think the king's expecting here? I mean, passionately hoping Maybe his fasting, maybe his lack of sleep, maybe something, maybe Daniel's God is who Daniel said he was and something will happen. But was there probably a level of expecting silence, already anticipating to hang his head and to walk back? But what happens? Verse 21 then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. May God, my God, sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And as we continue through the end of the chapter, what we see is that King Darius was so amazed that he finds himself praising Daniel's God as a result of God's faithfulness to Daniel. Right? So, so as we read this, Daniel is living in a hostile environment, an environment that's hostile towards God and God's ways. Yet he remains faithful and committed to his God. So what, what do we learn from that? Because the way that he lived had such an effect that it resulted in the king worshiping God in return. So what can we do or how can we live that will be an influence to the world that we're in? Well, there's four things that Daniel models for us. Four things that, that, that show how God shaped Daniel's life to be an advertisement for him to the kingdom. The, the first thing we see is, is his work. He had an incredible work ethic. The next thing we see is, is his, his faithfulness. We see his morals and we see his attitude. All of these things have been shaped by God in such a way that they have an impact to the world that he's in. Think about his work ethic. This guy was good at his job. He continually rose to the top. Even when a whole regiment change happened, he still rose up. This guy worked hard and it was noticed by others. So how does God shape the way that you work? Or how does God shape the way that you go to school? How does God shape the things that you do? I think back to my my grandma. My, my, my parents, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, my great-grandparents, they all are from the mountains of eastern Kentucky, the hills of Kentucky, the deep, dark hills of eastern Kentucky. And, and so, so that's where my, my family's from. And, and I remember sitting down with my grandma before she passed away and seeing pictures of how beautiful the Appalachian Mountains were, seeing them and just being amazed at the beauty of the mountains, the, the winding creeks and the crystal clear water and, and seeing land that had been cleared where they farmed their own wheat and their own corn and these amazing, beautiful barns that were used to store the grain and, and thinking, 
Like what happened? Because now you go back to eastern Kentucky and the mounds have come in and stripped the tops of mountains. The creeks are full of cars and trash and sewage and, and, and no one takes care of their land. I mean, this place that could be so beautiful, just a, an incredible piece of America looks like junk. And I remember talking to my grandma and saying, what happened? And she looked at me and said, well, Jeff, when we grew up, we were poor. But we were hardworking poor people. Which she insinuated that now people were just poor and they weren't hardworking. And I think about that. Her generation was a generation of an extreme work ethic. And for them, it wasn't all about what you got out of it. It was just as important what you put into it. And so as Christians, we should realize that the work that we're called to is a reflection of the God that we serve. And that what we put into it is just as important as what we get out to it, get out of it. I love to see that work existed before the fall, which means that that's something that God wants to redeem. So, so our work ethic should be shaped by God, and God can use the way that we work, the way that we go to school, the way that we are in our neighborhoods, the way that we are involved in our communities to be an influence for him. So our work ethic is one thing that we see from Daniel that is shaped. The next thing we see is his morals. In Daniel, they tried to find fault in him. They tried to see if there were any skeletons in the closet and they found nothing. I mean, how many of us, if our lives were held under a microscope, would be a little bit worried? Right? Like, here's a man that shows us that he stands for what he stands for. He is who he is. And he reflects a good God and he tries to live faithfully to him to the point that no one could find any fault with him. Another way we see Daniel modeling for us a, a life that has been shaped by God is, is in his faithfulness. I mean, how many times do people follow Jesus when it's easy, but when times get tough or when, when it's risky, they kind of start to compromise or start to bend their, their, their convictions because they don't want to risk anything. Right? Daniel shows a completely different mindset. That when stuff got risky, he got even more faithful. Because he trusted God more than the circumstances he was put in. He looked back to God's faithfulness, forward to God's promises, and found refuge for the day. And remained faithful. And we also see his, his attitude was shaped by God. I mean, look at the, this guy is being brought to a lion's den. And we see absolutely no complaining. He comes out of the lion's den and sees his accusers, and yet we see no harsh words. And then for a king who had the power to make a change, but chose not to to save face with the people, there was no protest. Here's a man who had a positive and even attractive attitude in his toughest days. And so we see that God shapes our attitudes that we can have a positive attitude on our best days and even our worst days. So here's the deal. God wants to shape every area of our lives so that we can be walking advertisements for his love. God wants to shape every area of our lives so we can be walking advertisements of his love to a world that desperately needs it. So how do we become people who are shaped by God's grace? 
How do we become people that God shapes, that God uses like billboards to display his grace and mercy to a world that needs it? What I love about Daniel is that on on one hand, this serves as a great example for us to follow. But the Bible's not primarily about us. It's not primarily a book of heroes. It's not primarily a book of, of commands, things to do and things to avoid. This is primarily a book about Jesus and what he has done. And so even greater than an example to follow, Daniel provides us a pathway to see the beauty of Christ. You see, Daniel is ultimately pointing us to someone better than himself, a better and true hero. He's pointing us to Christ. So if we want to be shaped by grace, we need to read ourselves into the story rightly. If we want to be shaped by grace, we need to read ourselves into the story of Daniel and do so rightly. Now, if you're like me, Chances are, if you're reading this story, you put yourself as Daniel and you make the world the lion's den. That's that's generally how we read this story. If we were to read ourselves into it and say, who are you? Who is the world? We like to be Daniel and we like to see the world as the lion's den. What if I told you that's the wrong character lineup? What if instead of seeing ourselves as Daniel... We started to see ourselves as the satraps and the high officials. You see, our natural wiring is bent against God. Our natural wiring is to push back against God and his ways. So as these satraps and high officials push back on God, that's our natural wiring. You know, th- this is what some people call depravity. Depravity comes from the word crooked or twisted. And what that means is that the way that God has designed us to flourish, the way that God has designed us to be as humans has become crooked or twisted because of sin. And when you throw the word total on the front end of that, what that means is that crookedness or that twistedness, it completely affects every area of our lives. It breaks every relationship that we have. Our relationship with God is distorted. Our relationship with ourselves are distorted. Our relationships with others are fractured. Even our relationship with creation. Every single inch of the universe becomes affected by sin. All right? And so what happens in us being the satraps and the high officials, those who push back against God, just as Darius put a law in place that couldn't be changed, God has given us a law and shown us consequences of our actions. So here's what happens. When we push back against God, when we put ourselves in a position that says, I know what's best for my life, God, you take the back seat. When you put yourself in a position or have an attitude that says, God, I just feel like you're holding back on me. I feel like there's something that I should be enjoying that you're restricting me from. We have put ourselves in the shoes of Adam and Eve and we have rebelled against God and we have committed high treason. And the penalty for high treason is death. 
right? So what we deserve because of our sin, which every single person in here has done, the wage of our sin is death, both physical and both spiritual. So let me tell you this. How many of you have sinned and immediately died today? No one. We're all breathing, which means the fact that you have not physically died right now means that God is currently showing his grace on you. That is incredible that God shows his grace both to those who love him and those who are against of him, and he does so continually. So the fact that we're breathing and not physically dying right now means that God is extending grace, but it also means a spiritual death. So let me explain what spiritual death means. That means that the wage of your sin or what you have earned, what you deserve is to be eternally separated from God and eternally punished for your actions. You see, we are the satraps. We are the high officials. We have rebelled and pushed back against God. What we deserve is death. That is bad news. That is horrible, bad news. But do you know what happens? Jesus steps into history as a true and better Daniel. And as he steps into history, from the position of the satraps and the high officials, we betray him and our actions lead him to the den of the cross. One of the themes of Daniel is reversal. When Daniel and his three friends are tested, they are given lesser feud, lesser food. And, and what we expect is that they aren't in a better position because of it, but there's a reversal where they end up being better than the other men. When, when Daniel's friends are thrown into the fiery furnace, there's an expectation that they would be annihilated because of the heat, but there's a reversal because they escape without a singe of their clothes, without a stench of smoke on them. When Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, we expect him to be torn limb from limb, but there's a reversal. He walks out unharmed without a bone being broken. And so when Jesus steps into history, when our actions of betrayal lead him to the cross, we expect a reversal. Like with every blow that Jesus takes, we, we expect God to show up. We expect angels to come down. If you were to read the story of the cross with fresh eyes, as if you have never read it or never heard it before, and you read it in light of what we see in Scripture, you would expect a reversal to happen. But blow after blow after blow happens. Jesus breathes his last. They pierce him with a spear, and he bleeds out blood and water, and they carry his lifeless body to a tomb and we're left thinking where was the reversal and like Daniel going to the lion's den and having a stone rolled over top sealed with wax Jesus was laid not risking death but fully dead lifeless in a tomb and a stone was rolled in front sealing it this is the darkest moment in history. A moment where all hope seems but lost. But then we are prepared with every story and every other reversal in Scripture to be set up for the greatest reversal of all time. You see, the stone was rolled away and it was found empty because our Savior stood up and walked out 
of the grave. You see that? You see that? Jesus is a victorious Daniel. He's a true and better Daniel. And we see ourselves as the ones who put him in the grave. And the fact that he went there willingly for us, it should lead us to worship him. I mean, think about this. When, when Daniel's three friends were in the fiery furnace, what did they say? They said, our God can deliver us. Our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we trust that his ways are best. When Jesus goes to the cross, do you know what he says? My God can deliver me. And I know he won't. But I trust that his ways are the best. Because there's no other way to save you. And Jesus willfully died the death and the penalty that we deserved. So that we could have eternal life with him. You see, when we start to see the beauty of that message, we begin to be people who are shaped by grace. When we begin to see the beauty of that message, it starts to change the way that we work. It starts to change the way that we act. It starts to change the way that we are faithful. It starts to change our attitudes. And piece by piece by piece, We are shaped to be an advertisement for God's love, for God's grace, and for God's mercy to a world that desperately needs it. You see, this is why God has us in the world. Because he knows that we have something for the world. An offer that it's only possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So students, will you leave this weekend being a people shaped by grace? Will you leave this weekend being students who are amazed by the cross? Will you be students who see Jesus as more beautiful than anything else? You see, if we leave with anything else, then whatever God has been working on you now will only fizzle. If you leave here and you're motivated by guilt, I feel bad and I know I should do something differently, you will fizzle out. But if you leave here motivated by the love of Christ and the beauty of the cross and the victory of the grave, then you will have power to sustain true life change. If you leave here this weekend pulling yourself up by your own straps, determining by your willpower that you will change, You will burn out. But if you leave here motivated by the love of Christ, knowing that nothing you have done, nothing that you could do will make God love you less or love you more, but that you are fully loved and fully accepted for all eternity because of Jesus and Jesus alone, then you will have the motivation to run after him. You see, the call for all of us this morning is to look to the cross to see it as beautiful, and to let the grace of God shape every area of our lives so that God can use our lives as instruments in his hands to reach a world that needs him.